Hello and welcome to How Many Geese. He's Jack Badams. And he's Roddy Shaw. And if you're looking for a podcast about nature that doesn't take itself too seriously, then we are the natural selection. On today's episode. And now, children, the badger will slowly dissolve <laughs> to become only a pair of testicles. And the males essentially just have one function, to find a female in the abyss of the deep <laughs> sea and mate with them. It's in many ways dating in lockdown. <laughs> and just over his shoulder, the frog that we've been looking all day for just hops onto a thing. It jumped again and everyone's eyes followed it as it just jumped and plopped into the fire. <laughs> so I recently found out where the word parasite comes from. To anyone who doesn't know, the actual definition of a parasite is a symbiotic relationship where you have one organism, which is the parasite, which is living on or inside another organism, which is the host. And it always causes it harm. Now, the actual word parasite comes from the Latinization of a Greek word, which means one who eats at the table of another. Which I quite liked, that. That's very lovely for a tick. <laughs> yeah, and then this led me to thinking about parasites and doing a bit of a dive into the world of parasites. Because one of my favourite parasites, if that's the right way to say it, but one of the ones that always sticks with me, I don't know if you're familiar with it, is the... Sticks on you. Is the the fish, the, the tongue-eating oh. louse. Yeah. I've seen pictures and it's... It's incredible. I've, I saw it years ago and it stuck with me. So this is the tongue-eating louse, which is an isopod that preys on marine fish. So we should say just for any... It's going to look like a wood louse looking thing. Yeah, it's like an isopod. Yeah, yeah which is, a, which is yeah. A, a wood louse type thing. Now this is a little parasite that enters the fish through the gills and then the female parasite attaches to the tongue of the fish while the male will attach to the kind of gill arches behind the female. But the female attaches to the tongue and using its front claws, the louse severs the blood vessels in the fish's tongue, causing it to basically the tongue basically to wither away from a lack of blood. The parasite then replaces the fish's tongue by attaching its own body to the muscles of the tongue stub. And it basically becomes a functional tongue for the fish. It's the only known case of a parasite assumed to actually replace a complete host organ. So it replaces the tongue and it either feasts on the blood of the fish or many others just feed on the fish mucus, which is lovely. Ooh. That was one of the ones that always stuck in my mind hmm. when I stuck in my mouth. mouth. Yeah. And the pictures of it, the pictures of it are the best bit. I think one of them won some wildlife photography award and it was of a clownfish and it got its mouth open and it was looking straight at the camera and you can just see when the fish have got their mouth open, you can see these little eyes staring out of the mouth. God. And it's this isopod, it's the tongue-eating louse where the tongue should be. You can see these little eyes poking out. But that's an extraordinary piece of parasitism. But there are more amazing bits of parasitism that I'd not really thought about. Because when you think about parasites, you do think about ticks. The wing-eating leech, but which <laughs> replaces the wings of what it, and soars on leechy wings. You can break parasitism down into lots of different subcategories. One of them I found was parasitic castration. Oh, don't like that. <laughs> which is already, yeah, already makes you wince. Oh, the ex-wife. Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Now, this is a strategy that blocks the reproduction of the host completely or in part for its own benefit. Now, let me introduce you to the mother-in-law. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> to the crab hacker barnacle. The female starts life looking a bit like a small slug. And in this stage, it's trying to get to a crab. Okay. 
So the female barnacle little larvae slug thing settles on a suitable crab and then it starts to crawl across the surface until it finds a suitable spot. And it then develops into a form called a kentrogan, which inserts a stylet, which is basically like a, would you describe a stylet as? It's like a, like a, proboscis, a tendril. Like a chudby, yeah. like a tendril. Yeah. It inserts this stylet tendril into the crab and starts to push its way inside. And from there, it moves through the inside of the crab in due course, pushing out a sac, which is known as an externa, on the underside of the crab's abdomen. So it's now fully within the crab, but it's pushed out this sac at the bottom of the crab's abdomen. The bit remaining inside starts spreading tendrils all throughout the crab, taking over the stomach, intestines and nervous system to absorb nourishment and enable the parasite to control the behaviour of its host. And this is a, a barnacle. This is a barnacle, the crab hacker barnacle, which literally hacks into the crabs. As soon as this crab hacker barnacle now has got full control over the crab, the crab can no longer grow, it can't digest food, and it can't reproduce. Every ounce of energy is now directed into nurturing its oh my... swelling slug guest. God, that's nightmare fuel. Hollywood's definitely missing out on this one. So that sac that basically comes out the bottom of the crab in its abdomen is in place of where the crab would raise its own eggs and fertilise oh, them. Oh, under the... Under the bit of the crab, there's like a little V-shape. I want to say plastron. You could be right. I think I might. And I'll so say that, it. So that's where this external sac that the parasite has now put yeah. out. And the crab's reproductive capabilities, like I say, just disappear. And the eggs of the parasite now develop in that underside sac where the crab would normally raise its own eggs before it spreads them out into the sea. Oh, so wait, hang on. The barnacle doesn't make eggs. The barnacle makes the crab make eggs. No, so the bar what the barnacle does is it develops its own eggs right. in the sac, yep. the externa, on the underside of the crab. Yep. And the crabs carry those eggs around, secured in their abdomen, just as they would their own eggs. Right. So the female crab has already got that evolutionary programmed behaviour to care for her eggs, but now that just translates to the parasite's eggs. Jesus. The eggs are fertilised by a male parasitic barnacle, which can enter the sac and fertilise the eggs. The males are absolutely tiny. So the male crab hacker yeah. doesn't hack crabs. The male crab yeah. hacker just lives... Yeah. So the male is just swimming around trying to fertilise the eggs. It's only Hacked the crabs. Yeah, it's only the females that are, that are taking over <laughs> crab bodies, creating these egg sacs. Hundreds of eggs are produced every day and can remain in the sac for about six weeks. When the parasitic eggs are ready for release, the crab will climb onto a rock and then just do its normal behaviour where it kind of bobs around a bit in the current so that the eggs get wafted away. I thought you were going to say explode. No. So I thought you were going to say it climbs up and it just detonates. <laughs> It's essentially what it's doing is commandeering the crab's own natural behaviour because that's what they normally do with their own eggs is they get onto a rock where the current is and then they bob around a bit and the eggs disperse and off go the crab eggs. But it's hijacking that behaviour for use for its own... Hijacking the whole crab? Yeah. And, and it can live for as long as the crab lives. So perhaps one or two years and it will just... Once it's in, it's in. If it is experimentally removed then female crabs will usually regenerate their ovaries and can kind of go back to some semblance of normal. Uh, some <laughs> semblance. <laughs> there will be years of counselling. <laughs> They'll never be the same. It's, maybe we can hope to rebuild 
if the parasite gets into a male, then it's a little bit trickier because it it's not programmed naturally to undergo the same behaviour of egg dispersal and stuff But like also, that. we should maybe say that crabs, one of the ways you can tell them apart... Now, I don't know about all crabs, but going around like beaches picking them up the way well, this i was is, taught this is the shore crab that we're talking about the standard crab that yeah. many of us so, see on beaches if you imagine a lobster has got a long tail coming out what crabs basically do is they fold that whole tail under themselves and the way you can tell them apart is when you turn a crab on its back if it's got a broad and i do think it's called plastron but even if i'm wrong i'm it's saying a little triangle it, isn't it yeah so the females have a big one of them to hold all the eggs and the males have a small one of them because they don't have to do it. So it's it's not just the behaviour of the crab, it's the actual hardware that this hacked crab has to offer. Yeah. And on that note, the parasite, if it gets into a male, will cause the male to develop feminine characteristics, including the broadening of that abdomen. So it hacks into the crab and starts essentially changing its sex and they undergo hormonal changes and start to act like females, nurturing the parasite in exactly the same way as a female would. This is a godless creature. It makes the tonglaus look, you know, oh, CBBs. Pedestrian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. I don't understand. They don't eat all the... Because in the crab shell is the squidgy crab. Yeah. I thought they ate all the squidgy crab and they just ran around in the crab shell. But the crab is still Yeah, so they don't crab. Want, they don't want to kill the crab, so they're not eating the crab. The crab is still feeding. That's the sinister thing, is the crab is still oh. feeding, but all that energy is going into the parasite. The parasite is just giving the crab enough energy to keep it going because it's the vessel for the parasite. Oh my god. So it doesn't want to eat the crab because it's tapped into its nervous system, it's tapped into its stomach, so it can harvest whatever nutrients it wants that the crab is feeding on. It's not actually after eating the crab itself. Jesus. It's so well, great. Well, good night, kids. <laughs> Imagine this stuff happened. Like, we just accept that weird shit happens in the sea. Imagine there was like a deer hacking slug and you'd just go for a walk and there'd be a deer with a f egg sack hanging under it going, uh, uh, uh. You're 100% right. We, we just say it to... happens with a crab and we're like, well, it's a crab, whatever. But if, you know, yeah. the, the goose hacking pigeon and you just saw a pigeon <laughs> crash into a goose and crawl in its mouth. You're exactly right. If it happens in the sea or it happens with insects, we just kind of go, well, it's a bit weird. Yeah. Aren't anyway. Oh, nature's scary. But nature is properly horrific. Yeah. The classic case is the alien films yeah. were inspired by the parasitoid wasps that yeah, lay, yeah, yeah. lay their eggs into caterpillars and then the larvae of the wasp hatches in the caterpillar and then eats its way out of the inside of the caterpillar. Yeah. And that was the inspiration for Ridley Scott to create the aliens which, you know, lay their eggs inside and then burst out of your chest. But the Crab Hacker Barnacle, that's a horror film waiting to be made, like a human version of the Crab Hacker Barnacle. You said it lives as long as the crab lives, so it's not like one reproductive cycle, like it can keep... It just keeps producing, like <sighs> it takes over the crab for the rest of its life. God. Yep, don't like that. So, <laughs> other weird... That can stay in the sea. So another weird thing that happens in the sea is we're talking about parasitism between different species, but you can also get parasitism within species. And in the deep sea, where everything's weird, you, of course, get anglerfish. Mm -hmm. Anglerfish being the fish that live at the bottom of the deep sea have the thing that sticks off their head that's got a light. And the, sure. the bioluminescent light attracts prey. They go, oh, what's this? And then the anglerfish grabs it and eats it. <laughs> exactly. 
Signed. That's my anglerfish impression. <laughs> I'm good. available like, to do... like there's one in the room with us. Yeah, exactly. I'm available for all deep sea creatures. Do you want to hear my gulp at eel? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's uncanny. <laughs> when scientists started capturing anglerfish from the deep sea, they saw that all of them were female. And as well as that, all of them had weird parasitic lumps sticking out of their bodies. When these anglerfish are swimming around in the deep sea, they're living at such low densities, that is, they're so spread out, that running into another anglerfish is a pretty rare occurrence. So for mating, that poses a problem. Mm. So the males are much smaller than the females. And the males essentially just have one function, which is to find a female in the abyss of the deep <laughs> sea and mate with them. And once you've found a female... It's in many ways dating in lockdown. <laughs> Find her in the abyss. <laughs> Find them and stick with them. Yeah. So the way the anglerfish does this is once it's found its mate, it literally sticks to her. So yeah. the male will bite into her skin and release an enzyme that digests the skin of his mouth and her body, which fuses the pair down to the blood vessel level. So he essentially becomes part of her body. And from that point on, he's stuck with her for life. He begins to swell and live off the nutrients of the female now that they've got a shared circulatory system. They remain reproductively functional, because that's the whole point, as long as the female is alive, meaning that when she's ready to spawn, the male is always there, ready to fertilise the eggs. Yeah. Now, sometimes multiple males can be incorporated into a single individual female. The most males that have ever been found on a female anglerfish is eight parasitic males, all attached to one female. Whereas some species have a, a lot higher standards and um, <laughs> just have a, a one male per female rule. But that's an example of parasitism, even within a species, literally a war of the sexes, where you've got the male that is the parasitoid of the female. But once again, another, another example of imagine if that happened. I was just thinking it, giraffes. <laughs> female giraffe with a load of other just limp giraffes hanging off her, being dragged around. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, look at Susan. She's got a new fella on her. Imagine that at the zoo. What <laughs> are those breeding programs? We're going to introduce the male and hope they like each other. It's just footage of this whatever. Pick an animal that it shouldn't be. Badger. Why not? <laughs> just, oh! It's like, oh my God. Thank God. He's latched onto her. And now, children, the badger will slowly dissolve to become... Dissolve its face. To become only a pair of testicles through which to feed her its semen. Night, kids. <laughs> but but in the end, that's all nature cares about. Like we, because of what we are and because of our brain, we've been able to make our life about so much more. But to nature, all it cares about, like the meaning of life is literally to breed and get your genes into the next generation. It's not even, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can go further back with it that everything is DNA trying to make more of itself. Yeah. That's it. It's not even, it's not even life. It's one molecule because all of the metabolic processes, the energy, all of that is DNA trying to make more of DNA. And all this is now getting really profound, but all life here, I said this to a, when I was a teacher, I said this to a class full of kids. And they blew their minds. So <clears throat> all every species of life is, is a solution to the problem of how does DNA make more of itself. Whether it's a tree or a crab hacking whatever nightmare, it's just this one molecule. And it's not even that. It's four 
Where is it? Nucleotides and that. So, yeah, within that molecule, it's how do we make more of that? And 4.2 billion years ago, it started with one single-celled gloopy way of just bloop, 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 bloop. And now we've got everything from majestic herds of wildebeest to crabs getting their insides eaten out and turned into robo-breeding platforms for barnacles to deep-sea toothed nightmares with <laughs> testicles merging into them to all the wonders of the sky. And yeah. all it is is DNA trying to make more DNA. Endless solutions to one problem. It, sh it shows you how far it's willing to go, isn't it? Like, to that anglerfish, that's success. Yeah. Like, to us... It's a great day. To us, it's horrible. But to that anglerfish, dissolving your face into the skin of a female... Can you imagine... To be honest, I know some, some hey. folks that are probably quite happy with this. Oh, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, 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 <laughs> But that, that's, that's success, and that's all they could, you know, have hoped to get out of life, and they did. Can you imagine the relief of that male anglerfish when the last remnants of his face melt away? Imagine spending your life in... Not only the crushing pressure of the Mariana Trench, but the crushing pressure of trying to find a female in the Mariana Trench. And you're yeah. just swimming around, dodging all the other light-up arseholes, looking for a football-sized ball of teeth to melt your face into. <laughs> and the moment you bite her, it's probably the highlight of your life. Yeah. And then you steadily feel your features melt away into nothingness until finally you complete your mission. The relief must be unparalleled in the animal kingdom. Respect to you, male anglerfish. <laughs> okay, so you also get brood parasites. So you've got parasites, which are the ones that we've spoken about, which are parasites of individual animals. Mm -hmm. So they are negatively affecting a particular animal, whether it's the anglerfish attaching to the female or whether it's um, the crab hacker barnacle taking control of a crab. But brood parasites, well, the most famous brood parasite is a cuckoo, mm -hmm. which lays its eggs into the nests of other birds and makes them care for its own young. But there's another type of brood parasite that I'd not heard about. Now, brood parasitism is essentially boils down to making another individual raise your young. Now, that could be another individual within your species, but generally it's making another species look after your young. So in the cuckoo's case, it's laying its eggs into the nest of, say, a reed warbler. The reed warbler raises that cuckoo, etc. Enter the slave maker ants. Wow. As always, <laughs> insects and invertebrates just pull it out of the bag. Such hardcore names being thrown around in this. Have you ever seen that map of, like, distribution of death metal bands in the world and Finland has a ridiculously high percentage of them? Yeah. It's like... Distribution of terrifying names. The sea and invertebrates, because you've got the crab-hacking barnacle, yeah. the slave-maker ant, the tongue-eating isopod. Yeah. So these are brood parasites that capture the broods of other ant species to mm -hmm. increase the worker force in their colony. They're child snatchers, essentially. Ooh. They uh, do raids into other ant nests, grab the larvae and the pupa, and take them back to their colony and raise them as their own. Now, there are some species of ants that can enslave other adult ants and bring them back basically as hostages, well, as slaves. And this, amazingly, has evolved over 10 times within different species of ants. So the slave maker ants are a group of ants, and it's evolved in different species, this behaviour. Some of them rely on this behaviour entirely. Some of them just do it 
whenever the kind of moment takes them. <laughs> if, <laughs> as a hobby. As a hobby, yeah. yeah, yeah whatever yeah, the yeah. mood takes them. Like, you know what? Let's go raid an ant nest. Yeah. So how do these raids go? So the scouts from the raiding party are sent out to locate suitable nests to raid. Mm-hmm. Once they found the suitable nest, they head back to the colony and recruit a band of raiders. They lay down a chemical trail back from the nest so that they can come back with all their slave raiding mates and raid it. Now, when the raiding party turns up, the host nest has two options. It can fight or it can run away. In most cases, they run away because they're completely not prepared for this attack and in the slave makers come and take all their babies. Yeah. Most studies on the raiding behavior of some of these slave raiders show that they rout their opponents who typically flee in a state of panicked alarm and that aggressive encounters where they occur are brief and do not result in the deaths of adults from either species. However, sometimes the raiders encounter resistance against particularly large colonies and they can have prolonged fighting that involves deaths, like, you know, loads of deaths on either side. So sometimes it's it's proper warfare between two colonies when the slave raiders are met with met with resistance. But the slave raiders, if successful, can capture up to 14,000 pupa in a single season. So they take those pupa back. Bear in mind, these are of a different species of ant. They hatch them in their own colony and those little hatchling ants become imprinted on the colony that abducted them. They then become part of the colony and help them out in all aspects of life, tending the pupa, gathering food, even slave raiding even slave raiding against their own species because they now think they're part of the slave raider species. Jesus. So you have one species of ant going to a nest of its own species to capture them and bring them back to the species that was it was abducted by when it was a pupa. So most of them are imprinted, but this, this is pretty mental. In some cases, the enslaved ants rebel against their captors Yes. And kill a large number of the slave maker ant offspring. Uh, Maximus Decimus Antimus. <laughs> it's going down in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Or it's secretly sabotaging. It's going around the nest and killing all the pupa. Oh. It's thought they do this because it is of a species that was raided nearby. It's likely that there are still those colonies around. Resistance ants. And be- <laughs> <laughs> They're feeding, they've dug other tunnels into the into the colony. It's spy in the ranks. Yeah. It was all an orchestrated plan. Little beret. Yeah, just like tapping yeah. right, to get information yeah. back to the main colony. I don't have much time. Yeah, they're telling an aphid, take this, <laughs> travel west. <laughs> but what they think they're doing is because that ant was raided from a nearby nest, Yeah, it means that there will be nests nearby that are of the same species that that ant is because ants are all related to each other because they're all the product of one queen the chances are that that ant shares a lot of its genes and this goes back to you talking about dna Mm. what it shares a lot of its genes with the ants in the nearby colonies so by sabotaging the slave maker ants and stopping future slave raids it's helping the ants in surrounding colonies mm. which have a lot of the same genes and DNA that it does because they'll be so closely related. Now, I've got no idea how the ant would know this. Or how do we know that? They'd have to watch a lot of ants to see which one rebels. There's a mole in the ranks. <laughs> Find him. <laughs> Taping your eyelids open, trying to track them all. Pounding black coffee in the middle of the night. <laughs> like, one of these ants is the spy. <laughs> Just moving little things around on boards trying to work yeah, out yeah. what's what. So that was my brief foray into parasitism. Let's just be grateful 
none of them have backbones. Have backbones. <laughs> yes. What's the worst parasite that impacts humans? Malaria, surely. Yeah. But I mean, they're no when right. Malaria kills loads of people. Yeah. That's a fact. However, in the rankings of parasitic nightmare fuel, malaria is way yeah. down the bottom. We don't have stuff eating bits of us and replacing it. We don't have ourselves getting hijacked from the inside. We don't. Although, isn't there toxoplasmosis? Toxoplasma gondii. Which causes maybe toxoplasmosis. Maybe yeah. I've got the condition. Not this is what I know about it is it Doesn't gets it? into rodents and yeah. what it wants is to go into cats because yeah. that's its final like reproductive phase mm. is in cats. So it decreases the amount of risk that rodents feel or rather it increases the amount of risks that rodents are willing to take. So normally mm. when they'd be hiding, mm. it suddenly gives them an air of kind of bravado yeah. and they come sauntering out from out under the building or whatever because it wants that to be eaten by a cat yeah. so that it can get itself into yeah. the cat. But there is evidence that in humans that are humans that are involved in road traffic incidents when they looked into their blood or their brain or wherever Toxoplasma gondii lives, those that stepped out in front of moving traffic had a higher percentage of Toxoplasma gondii in them, suggesting that, because historically, that would have resulted in maybe, you know, if a human had seen a cave and it was like, oh, there might be a leopard in there, I'm not going to go in there, but it's inhibiting that risk response. And nowadays that reverts to potentially stepping out in front of a car. Uh, or taking a risk that you don't need to from stepping out behind the car and then getting hit in a road traffic accident. Yeah, punching so, your boss by the photocopier. Yeah. Fuck you, Terry! <laughs> <laughs> then when you're in the HR meeting, it wasn't me. I have a cat. There's a lot, you know. So, so yeah. So, although we think we are completely separate from parasites, it's just it's the, it, there's something so sinister about the fact that you're not in control of your own. Oof. It's deep. Well, good night, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, it's that time where we take an animal and we pit it against Roddy in a fight to the death and he tells us how many he could fight off. Now, today's animal has been unwittingly nominated by Instagram user Supanki. Don't know your real name, sorry. But this animal needs no introduction, really. It's the killer whale, the orca. Mm. Now, mm. very brief facts on the killer whale. The males can reach up to 26 feet long and weigh about eight tons. Their dorsal fins alone, that's the top fin, can be almost six foot high. If you're anything else living in the sea, <laughs> it's game over. Whether you're a seal, penguin, shark, including great white sharks, all sorts of fish, it's game over. But Roddy Shaw, you're not a sea animal. So the question is, how many orca are too many orca? Not many orca, I think, is the first thought. This battle, we should say, has to take place. Yeah. I will concede one of my usual uh, routes in giving myself some kind of home field advantage because I want a, a worthy opponent. I don't just want to fight some kind of desperate, yeah. dried up husk of what could be. We know, of course, SeaWorld trainers rarely come out on top when these things have happened. I think this might be one of the few arenas battles that has actually has occurred, played has life. played out and yeah, exactly. But I think what we need to consider is obviously this is a sizable opponent, not when they're young. That is very true. So then it becomes again, think outside the box, think okay. outside the fish tank. What's your size on how small this baby? Are we talking like newborn orca? Right. If the adult's dorsal fin is 6 feet, Can I'm be. guessing that a baby orca is still probably six feet. Yeah. 
in what we famously know is baby same size as dorsal fin. <laughs> <laughs> the universal rule of biology. Do you think you could punch a blowhole? I think you could. I don't know whether it'd feel it. I think that orca, as well as having the attack of teeth, strong flippers, strong tail to mm. smack things, mm. I think orca have got a decent defence. I think their I think their bodies are just masses of muscle. Oh, thick hide. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the amount of damage you can do to an orca, even if it's quite young, I still think is quite limited. And especially if you're in an environment, like how are you going to, you're punching through water potentially. Mm. All right. Two babies in a paddling pool. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Where's the most remote place you've been? I don't know, because there's always... It's very difficult to go anywhere in the world where there is nobody. Probably Sulawesi. There's a little island off of Sulawesi called Bhutan. And when you go to Bhutan, there's a couple of like large towns, but then you're very quickly into some of the like most pristine Sulawesi rainforest that's left. And you can just go for... I mean, you can get on a boat and you can go for like nine hours or whatever and barely see anyone. And then you can hike another four hours and you're just in the middle of absolutely nowhere i'd like to go to sulawesi it's shaped like the k on the special k box <laughs> it is it really is and what's great about sulawesi is it's kind of split by some mountains that cross section it into four and in each little corner you have like a macaque monkey that's slightly different to the other ones because the mountain range just splits them I like if they've got like a Game of Thrones thing going on with the monkeys. It's like, you know, some of the monkeys are King's Landing monkeys and some of them are... The Battle of the Four Kings or whatever it was. That's probably the most remote place I've been, I think. And I remember us turning up to this really remote camp in northern Bhutan and we'd got some local guides, some local Indonesian guides. We, we have this idea that local people have the best knowledge about the wildlife and things in their area. And most mm. of the times they do. Mm. But... There's sometimes when that's not the case and we were sat in the camp and it was dark and there was this noise coming from the forest and it was an owl it was i can't remember which species of an owl it was like a sulawesi mast owl or something like that and we were like oh we, we're gonna go and you know we'd like to go out in the forest and we'd like to to, to look for this thing and the guys were like no you can't. you can't you can't do that that's the ghost dog they were like when the ghost dog calls no one goes in the forest because either your, you or one of your loved ones are going to die. And we're like, you know, taking out my iPod and playing them the sound. <laughs> like, I downloaded this off the internet yeah. in England. Um, it's XL. So, yeah, it's not, always, it's not always the case. Actually, and something very similar to the story of the ghost dog happened in Honduras. Have you ever heard of the caca missile? I think, because when you were saying that, I was trying to think of when I was in Honduras and there being something making a weird noise and the guides having... Yeah some kind of it was just ringing bells of we were all there like oh look on page 17 there's this thing and we'd like to see it and then the moment it sort of you know you saw the whites of their eyes and it was like no my experience of being in a remote part of this cloud forest on the mountain in honduras in this this amazing place with the local people who are helping you they're guiding you around they're cooking for you um, and then we're all sat around the fire, as you do, because it gets dark at like six. So you're sat around the fire from whatever until you go to bed at like nine. And there's this really high pitched scream. And it was very loud. But what was louder was the high pitched screams that then came from all the cooks <laughs> that, that then just bolted from their pots and pans or whatever they were doing straight into the forest. After it or opposite? That I just remember them scattering. They didn't all go together. Right. They just like burst into completely <laughs> separate areas. And then there's this really high pitched scream again. 
and we we can tell it's coming up from the trees and then we shine a big torch on it and it's a caca missile which is it's a bit like a ring-tailed lemur mm. it's like a ring-tailed lemur crossed with a cat it's fairly big kind of cat size but then it's got a big long bushy tail which is kind of white and black striped yeah i think this is the same thing because in the book it was like a lemury looking yeah cat and, that, and that's what it is and we never actually heard from them what they thought it was and maybe they didn't think it was anything maybe it was just something screaming in the forest and they were terrified of that but uh, and our reasonable natural inclination was to was to follow it i think didn't you send me something that was about biologists being most likely to be tricked by oh yeah like folklore and stuff like that in the any strange noise or strange light that's emanating from deep dark woods ecologists and biologists are going to be the people yeah that go in there and fight yeah they're very easy to trick i remember being in honduras and similar but different in as much as we've been looking for something all day and then we eventually saw it but it was a frog and i can't remember exactly what the species was but it was this particularly rare frog and of course there's the chytrid fungus out there which is this disease which is killing frogs faster than the dinosaurs went out so we were really trying to find this frog anyway and it got to the end we'd been like hiking all day and up and down hills and it's terrain is like basically vertical so it takes it at you and we'd sat down, we were like, oh, God, you know, exhausted, but we'll go at it again tomorrow and we'll try and find it. And this was in the evening and we were around a campfire. And then literally sort of I'm looking, as I am now with you, sort of across the campfire at my colleague and just over his shoulder, the frog that we'd been looking all day for just hops onto a thing. And right as everyone turned and went, oh, my God, look, it's the frog. It jumped again, and everyone's eyes followed it as it just jumped and plopped into the fire <laughs> in amongst all of us. That yeah. was a really cracking bit of conservation there. I remember when you're when you're sat around the fire, it's punctuated by the pops and squeaks of moths that are flying into it, many of which have probably undescribed and, and never... Yeah. Completely new to science, yeah. but nature's Be- popcorn. Yeah, exactly. I remember being in Indonesia and someone there was swatting away the midges and stuff and they were just like these things that i'm slapping on my arm this is gonna be the first time anyone's ever seen this thing and that's what it's like when you go to these places yeah middle of absolute nowhere mm. where entire phd's worth of new information is just annoying you <laughs> <laughs> by existing <laughs> thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of how many geese we really appreciate everyone listening if you want to submit something for next season like an animal to fight or a topic or any burning nature question you've ever had you can follow us on twitter i am at roddy shaw and he is at jack badams b-a-d-d-a-m-s and on instagram i am at slide show rod and he is at j-a badams just send us a message with an animal you want us to fight a question you've always had about nature a topic send in some suggestions We're going to need suggestions for the next season because that's right, there will be a next season. Thank you very much. Share it around. Leave us a review. We really appreciate everything. Come back next season. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Bye-bye.